Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent work and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the show you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Eric Ortland on the book of Job as discussed in his upcoming book, Piercing Leviathan, God's Defeat of Evil in the book of Job. Dr. Ortland gained a PhD from the University of Edinburgh and is currently Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Oak Hill College in London. He has written on the book of Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Esther, Malachi, and a particular relevance to today's show, the book of Job. Now, if you've ever wondered why two weird monsters called Behemoth and Leviathan are described at the end of Job in relationship to the suffering of the title character, this is the podcast episode for you. Um, I'll also add that if you're expecting us to discuss dinosaurs on this podcast, yes, a few interpreters propose that Behemoth and Leviathan are dinosaurs. I'd recommend my interview with Ben Stanhope, where he he deals extensively with that angle of interpretation. But anyways, without further ado, let's uh, get on to the conversation. Dr. Orland is really insightful, really helpful, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Dr. Ortland, to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to start with a set of brief, fun questions so the audience can get to you know get to know you just a little bit. I was reading your bio um, on some website, gave you a bit of a stock, um, yeah. and it said that you're a huge fan of kung fu movies. That's one of the things that stood out to me the most. Why this particular niche subgenre? And what films would you recommend to entry-level viewers? Oh, well, why, why not that particular subgenre? Um, I, 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 different genres communicate the world in different ways. Uh, I love kung fu movies because the way they the world that kung fu movies portray is one where evil is real, but it's not omnipotent, it's beatable. However, the way they portray evil being defeatable is in a very non-Western way. It's not by getting a bigger gun and blowing the other guy out of the water. It's usually you have to learn a tradition from your elders. And if you don't do that, you will never win. And that's really interesting to me. Uh, it's Kung fu movies are never about personal self-glorification or self-aggrandizement. It's about fitting into a larger tradition. And so that's that's very interesting to me. And they look really cool, too. So. And what would your entry-level recommendations in that? Sure, sure. I just recommend diving in wherever you want. But I really like, there's a Jet Li movie about 15 years old now called Hero, which I think is just a work of art. Um, Ong Bak Tu is really fun. Fist of Legend, another Jet Li movie, is really fun. Uh, and they're old Shaw Brothers movies from the 70s that are just so silly and goofy and a lot of fun to watch. And I, I've just realized I've probably, I've probably just answer my own question by the title but i take it the karate kid is not a kung fu movie um the, the oh boy this is going to sound so snobbish of me okay but movies like the karate kid or kung fu panda uh, they try but they're just not there they're western movies you didn't ask about it but kung fu panda is about self-realization in the movie, Poe looks at the scroll and it's a mirror. He sees himself. He just needs to believe in himself. That's not a Kung Fu movie. That's not what it's about. And in The Karate Kid, it seems more about very normal, understandable teenage anxiety, which, yeah, that's not what Kung Fu is about. So I'm being very snobbish when I say that, but I, I think it's kind of a 
a bastardized mongrel version of it. Well, I think that's the case when anyone gets into a particular niche form of art and then when the it becomes something in popular culture tries to emulate it, that's what always happens is the people who are, you know, deeply invested, they always they always say it's not true to the actual, you know, subgenre. So I I totally get that. Patrick, I I, I... I have a feeling that this movie matters to you. I may owe you an apology because I may have stepped on your toes here. So I'm sorry if I'm being a snob. No, you're not. Um, I, I saw Karate Kid in the cinema and I don't think I've seen it since. So don't worry. Um, this, oh. is the, this is the most like recent Karate Kid. You know, I'm not old okay. enough to have seen okay. the, the original one in the cinema. But um, I'd like to move on to just talking about... Um, uh, where you live now, of course, you're anyone could tell by listening to you that you're an American, but you live in London. So um, to uh, maybe forge a divide in my audience, which is better, the, the UK or the US and why? Um, so I'm probably somewhat in the minority, but I, I, I'm an Anglophile and I think Britain is just a thousand times better than my own culture. Whenever I go back for about half an hour, after I land, I think, oh, I remember that about America. I like that. That's pretty cool. I remember that. That's good. And then I just want to go back. So. Okay. I suppose that the meal sizes as well uh, in America, that would be one advantage maybe that Britain doesn't have, would you say? I, I find when I go back, my stomach gets upset because Americans are such consumers. The restaurants give us way more food than we need. Um, so that, that I, I'm probably in the minority when I say that. If you're asking me which I prefer, it's a pretty easy choice for me. Obviously, you know, as Irish people, you know, we're the arch enemies of the Brits. You know, obviously, we're still. <laughs> if we meet each other, you know, we attack each other. Not actually. Um, yeah. But <laughs> well, I th uh, I think England has given you good reason to feel that way. So well, yeah, but of course, as as Jesus said, uh, Father, forgive them. You know, so I th I think I'll. <laughs> I'll forgive them. I'll, I'll forgive them too. That's the question, yeah. right? Getting more biblical. Um, in your own work, you focus on the Old Testament, and we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. Um, but I'd like to switch gears temporarily to the New Testament um, because it's always interesting to interview Old Testament scholars about their opinions on the New Testament. So what is your favorite and least favorite book of the New Testament and why? Oh boy, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I, I'm gonna cheat on this answer. I don't quite have one favorite New Testament book. I read the New Testament in Greek, and then when I get to the end of Revelation, the treat I get is I get to read my favorite books, which are always John, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation. And I can't pick which one I like the most, so I just read those four, and then I go and start over again. Right. The least favorite. I don't know if I have a least favorite. I definitely First Corinthians is still a bit of a mystery to me uh, obviously it has such powerful and important passages but i just i really struggle with just knowing what's going on for first corinthians and i feel like when i'm in luke acts i'm entering a different world and i just don't know the terrain all that well so there's so many beautiful passages and verses but i feel like i made the least progress with those books and i feel like i'm most a foreigner when i'm in that territory yeah it's interesting that the four books that you said are your favorite are generally the four books that are the most difficult to interpret in the New Testament, in my experience anyway. Uh, it's a glutton for punishment. Yeah. So today, 
of course, um, we'll we'll get on to the Old Testament now, where I believe you um, you focus in most of your work. So we're going to be talking about your book, um, upcoming book called uh, Piercing Leviathan, and it's you've worked alongside D. A. Carson, um, not least in the making of this book, and he's obviously um, a huge figure in um, uh, the tradition uh, that that I'm from. Uh, in evangelicalism. So how has he influenced you in, in your own theological approach? And um, which of his books would you recommend the most? God gave us a wonderful gift when he gave us D.A. Carson, and may he give us many more men like him. Um, his Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, was that, am I getting the title right? His, his he published his father's diaries. Yes, it's Memoirs um, of, of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. Right. Yeah. I, I've read Gagging of God. I, I, I've read his book on First Corinthians. I mean, I've I've read his Matthew commentary. They're all so helpful. That, that I I read that, gosh, at least eight years ago. I don't remember exactly. And I, you know, there are not many books from eight years ago. I still remember that. That's a powerful book. Mm. That's a powerful book. Yeah. Is is it sobering to you to think that this book that's coming out, no one's going to remember it in eight years? <laughs> uh yes. Extremely sobering, and maybe even shorter than that. But that's Ecclesiastes, not Job. So it's still a very good thing to do because it's a gift of God, even though it just all wiped away so quickly. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So sobering. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this. So you're looking at, and the, the book is called Piercing Leviathan, and obviously you're focusing on sort of the this um, mysterious figure that appears, um, and we'll get to that in a sec. But when it comes to you know the book of Job in general um in uh, in recent years you know i've i've become aware of kind of the complexities that that surround the book of job as a as a work of literature so i'm wondering like as a scholar who's looked at this you know on a scale of 1 to 10 with you know 10 being the books of zechariah and revelation how challenging do you think the book of job is to interpret yeah i i think it's an 11 an 11 right I th- in my opinion in my opinion, it's the most difficult book in the Old Testament, if not all of Scripture, although obviously a book like Revelation could really give it a run for its money. Uh, in my, but in my opinion, at least in the Old Testament, it's the most difficult book to interpret for a variety of reasons. Hmm. Could you spell out some of those reasons why you find it um, difficult? Sure, sure. So the extremely difficult Hebrew, which... Uh, there are a number of verses where it's just hard to know what the characters are saying. I'm guess I, I'm sure a native Israelite, it's like when we read Shakespeare, nobody really talks that way, but native speakers can pretty much get what's going on. For a non-native speaker, it's just hard to know what's what's being said sometimes. Um, it's it's so it's difficult exegetically and linguistically. It's difficult morally and theologically um, to watch this great man suffers so horrifically just to prove if he loves God or not. Isn't God omniscient? Can't God just tell? Can't we just let Job have his children, you know? And then, and then God shows up and says, boy, Job, the universe sure is complicated and mysterious. And Job says, you're right. I'll stop arguing. And then God says, Hey, Leviathan, how about that? And Job says, Oh, now, and God says almost nothing directly about himself in the second speech. But then Job says, now my eyes see you. So what is it that Job has figured out about God that 
provokes so great a change in him. It's it's the book of Job is difficult uh, for another reason. It's just so tiring. It's exhausting. And I think it's almost meant to be frustrating. Job and the friends do not have enough information to figure out what is going on with Job's situation. And they don't know that they don't know. They're ignorant about their own ignorance. So the book of Job could be 800 chapters long, and they would get no closer to figure out what's going on with Job. So why is it, why does it go on for so long? And why is it there at all? Hmm. Um, and there are other individual verses where I really think the narrator uh, was kind of chuckling to himself when he wrote it. Job throughout the protest, throughout his speeches, he will understand wrongly, but understandably saying, I was minding my own business and God kicked me in the teeth. He says in chapter 16, God's using me for target practice. And we know from chapter one, Job is totally wrong about that. But Job doesn't know that. It's actually a valid inference within his limited framework, even though he's completely wrong. And then when Job has his perspectives uh, expanded, at the end, God says, I'm super mad at the friends because they didn't speak rightly about me the way Job did. And you look at what Job says about God, and it's like, how did he say the right stuff about God? Like, I've really got to believe the, the poet was just chuckling to himself when he wrote that. I mean, he's deliberately throwing us a curveball. Mm. So it, at multiple levels and in multiple ways, the book just, it, the, the, the author is throwing us in the deep end with the book of Job. Mm. The narrator does not give us a lot of explicit help in the book of Job. He doesn't tell us what to think about Elihu. He doesn't tell us how to evaluate all the stuff Job says that is both hopeful and also really angry. So he just sort of shows us this stuff and leaves it to us to make up our own minds. We don't get a lot of explicit help from the narrator. So that's another reason it's really tough. I've heard uh, many people, you touched on this briefly, um, uh, not least the publishers of your own book in the blurb. They say they describe the ending of Job as anticlimactic and uh, frustrating for many. Um, could you yes. briefly briefly elaborate on why people why people think this? Um, yes, uh, because biblical scholars have an amazing talent to obfuscate the Bible and make it boring, like scary levels of talent that way. Um, that's one reason. Another reason is our cultural location as post enlightenment Westerners mean that means that we are tone deaf and colorblind to a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that ancient Israelites and a lot of other cultures would just be very alert to. I'm guessing people in Africa or India or the Far East will be alert to all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament that as a white Westerner, I'm just not. And there's all kinds of supernatural stuff. Um, a, a modern post enlightenment scientific, reductive, materialist framework, which is what we're born into and we have to struggle against to break out of, you know, when, when it, 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 it will just be natural, even for very godly Western Christians to read about this thing that's in a river that's called Behemoth and think, oh, sounds like a hippo, except the tail doesn't really, otherwise sounds like a hippo. And then you read about this thing in the sea that has scales and teeth and it sounds like a crocodile. And it's easy for modern Western Christians to have a cosmology where we've got God in his heaven and then we've got creation that we believe was created. But it can be easy to picture it almost in a deistic way, as if creation is on its own running according to scientific laws. And the biblical worldview is one in which creation is a good um, but dependent environment. God is in his heaven. 
And there are myriads and myriads of angelic servants that God has, and some spiritual beings that aren't his servants. And so I, I, I just, um, it's very easy within our framework to give uh, a reductive and naturalistic explanation of Behemoth and Leviathan. And that's a problem because the best, if all, if Behemoth and Leviathan are a, crocodile, are a hippo and a crocodile, I don't know what else God could be saying except, Job, I am wise and I am powerful. The problem is Job never disputed that. What Job disputed was that God was good and trustworthy. Hmm. In fact, in chapter 12, God, Job says God is wise and powerful. So if all Job, if all God is trying to convince Job of is that his wisdom and power, then God is trying to convince Job of something Job never disagreed with. So why, I don't know, Patrick, if you had someone really close to you die, and God said, I am really wise and really powerful. I don't know. I suppose in a way that would be comforting. But would that like reduce you to the dust and make you say, now my eyes see? I mean, don't we know that about God already? Hmm. So in term, so it leads to an anticlimactic reading. It's hard to know why Job reacts so beautifully and so brokenly. And I think the reason why it happens is it's just we have a hard time reading the Old Testament supernaturally. And I think ancient Israelites would have had a much easier time doing that. Okay. We'll um we'll get on to uh, focusing on the creatures that obviously you mentioned there, and obviously it comes up in the title of your book, uh, Piercing Leviathan. So these creatures named Leviathan and Behemoth, could you describe the context in which um this, this creature, these creatures appear? Sure. So Behemoth appears almost nowhere else. He's never mentioned. Behemoth is actually not a name for an animal. It's the plural of the Hebrew word for animals. So, which is, I think, already a clue. It's not talking about any one individual species at all. But you, it's hard to find elsewhere in the Bible or the ancient Middle East another creature, whether natural or divine, that looks like Behemoth. There's a very brief reference in Psalm 68 to a beast of the reeds lying in the reeds, but it's so clipped that it's hard to know what to make of. Um, there is a little bit from the ancient Near East about sinister chaotic gods taking on a hippo-like form, but it's not a lot. So there's less to go on with Behemoth. With Leviathan, Leviathan is actually mentioned by name in a Canaanite Baalistic text called the Baal Epic, which is a long mythological poem about Baal and what a great king and ruler and storm god he is. The context is that the god Death is saying to Baal, you may have struck, you may have smitten Leviathan the tyrant with seven heads, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. And it's the same phrasing as in Isaiah 27, one, but you won't beat me. Death says to Baal. So outside of the Bible, Leviathan is mentioned as a supernatural opponent of the hero savior gods. You know, uh, Leviathan is mentioned in Isaiah 20, 27 as an eschatological part of God's, eschatological victory slaying the dragon in the sea he's mentioned in psalm 74 he's mentioned in job 3 job knows about leviathan and in job 3 leviathan is not a crocodile there he's an agent of chaos and job in his lament is saying i hope leviathan wins and creation is swallowed you know and there's another reference in psalm 104 which where leviathan doesn't look obviously chaotic um it's something of an exception but i talk about it in the book so th they're um, there are other, if, if God only wanted to talk about 
a big sea monster. There are other words in Hebrew he could have used to talk about that. Uh, the dog gadol, the big fish that swallows Jonah, or there's a word tani name that's used in Genesis 1 and Psalm 148 for sea creatures. And it might be, they might be supernatural, they might not, can't quite tell, but every other place Leviathan has talked about, it's not just an ordinary animal. Psalm 104 may be an exception. I think actually it isn't, but that's the larger context to these two creatures. Hmm. It seems to me that you're proposing that Leviathan Behemoth, they are, I suppose, supernatural symbols in some way, some or supernatural creatures. How do you think that this would make better sense of the ending of Job? I think, you know, for the average listener, it already sounds a bit, makes a bit more sense because if God's just saying, here, look at a crocodile, look at a hippo, um, it, it, it seems a little little odd, but... Um, I, I don't think that Behemoth and Leviathan are real animals. I think they're symbols of a chaos and evil that God tolerates in his creation. I, th- you know, I think the serpent in Genesis 3 is, a, is, I think it was a real snake. It's a guise that the devil takes on to tempt our uh, first parents. I don't think Behemoth and Leviathan are like that. I, I think they're purely symbolic. I could be wrong about that. I think that... Um, that is deeply comforting to Job for several reasons. First of all, Job has been protesting that, Job has been saying, I thought God was a nice, trustworthy guy, and I followed him, and I took care of poor people, and I had foster kids in my home. I did everything I could to obey and serve God, and he clobbered me for no reason. What does that say about God? God is not a good person. He's not trustworthy. And in talking so long about Leviathan, God is saying to Job, first of all, Job, I am not your enemy. I am not the one who is directly persecuting you. You, Job needs his cosmology diversified. Job says, God directly terrorized me. And in pointing to Leviathan, God is revealing to Job his true enemy and separating himself from Leviathan, saying, I'm not your enemy. Secondly, he is saying to Job, I am aware of... And I know the chaos and evil at loose in my world far, far better than you. Job knows about Leviathan, but only distantly. He mentions it in chapter three. God goes on for like 24 verses or something in this long physical description. And I think it's a way of saying to Job, I see up close the chaos that you know only distantly. It's a way of God saying to Job, I really get what's wrong with my world. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not some some um, cushioned, pampered dictator who has no idea what it's like for the ordinary citizens of my kingdom to live in it. I see better than you do what's wrong with my world. And then third, when he starts talking, you know, lay your hands on him in battle, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, you won't do it again. All the rhetorical questions he gives to Job are about things not only that God could do, but that he actually does do. So he's saying to Job, "You, there's no way... He's saying to Job, you have been suffering under a chaotic, dark, sinister power, and there's no way you could stand up to it. But there's coming a day I'm going to take my sword and cut it in half. I tolerate that evil for now. I won't always. So Job sees God not as his persecutor, but as his great champion. And finally, in so, so that is completely is a huge revolution for how Job views God. And then finally, God sounds so happy when he describes his world. He's the opposite of morose or apologetic or uh, defensive 
or anything like that. The one person who most clearly sees what is wrong with the world is the one person happiest out of all the characters in the book that the sun should go up tomorrow. The one person, I mean, you and I, Patrick, have a little bit of an idea of what's wrong with the world. We know about cancer and human trafficking and sexual abuse. We, we know it's out there, you know. Every single victim, God hears their screams up close, every single one. And he even sees the dark evil at work behind the scenes. And God is so happy that the sun should come up tomorrow. So if God's that happy about the world continuing, even though it still needs to be redeemed, then you and I can be as well. So there's an utter realism to Job and an utter joy at the end of Job. If the one person who is most who sees most clearly what's wrong with his world is the one character in the book who is happiest that the world should continue before the redemption of all things, that really look at the world. That's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but I think those four things are really significant in God's answer. And that's what breaks Job in the most be- and just gets the most beautiful confession and worship out of him at the end. No, I, I don't mind long answers that was a very uh very touching actually um exposition that you gave there and um really um i think makes a lot of sense pastorally as well for for people who are who are dealing with um, suffering do you think behemoth given that you, you are mostly talking about leviathan there but is behemoth is he as well a symbol of chaos um and is that how god addresses him do you think I, it's a little bit harder to tell with Behemoth because they're just, with Leviathan, it's open and shut because he's even mentioned outside the Bible and it's so clearly not a crocodile, you know? Behemoth, it's a little bit less clear. There is a text from Egypt where Horus and Set are fighting and Set is the sinister chaotic god, Horus the savior god, and Set takes the form of a hippo and Horus spears him, you know? I, I think it makes best sense Um. If God's just talking about a hippo, I just don't know why Job reacts so beautifully and so worshipfully. I think it makes, and also there's a reference to his tail like a cedar, and hippos have really thin tails. So it doesn't really quite fit. I think it makes best sense to take it as uh, a chaos monster. Yeah, but it's not so, I can't make so strong a case as I can with Leviathan. Mm. Okay, another interesting um, question that I think a lot of people have is um, to what extent could your interpretation be categorized as mythical and on, on a similar note does it bother you if the Bible contains mythical elements because I think for for some evangelicals not not all obviously not all but for some evangelicals that that does bother them and I'm wondering what your opinion would be on that yeah so uh short answer is yes it could be described as a mythical interpretation. No, it doesn't bother me. It makes me happier. That that makes the Bible richer to me. And the reason is, an unfortunate uh, eccentricity of the English language is that our word myth is used in more than one way. Common usage of it is something that is silly, childish, or obviously unbelievable. But we also use the word myth to talk about great, deep, symbolic stories that reach at things that are hard to put into words. Do, do you know what I mean? So Lord of the yes. Rings is a myth or something that um that's that's an eccentricity of our own culture in the there's all kinds of evidence in the ancient middle east and in the bible that ancient semites would have thought of the super what we would call the mythic the supernatural and so on and and the historical datable history not as two exclusive categories 
but they would have put them in the same category. Would have, they would have had no problem at all. There's a famous book by Bertolt Albrechtson called uh, The Idea. Oh, I'm forgetting the title. I quote it in the book. Um, Old Testament scholars will know it, where he just lists text after text from the ancient Middle East that talk about stuff that could be classified as mythic and then tie it to discrete historical contexts. It's us who tend to think of myth and real reality and real history in dichotomous ways. The ancient Middle East just didn't do that. Um, another way to, so I, 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 because of the ambiguity of the English word myth, I try to avoid using it because I want to fight for and preserve the precious tradition of the absolute historical reliability of the Bible, which previous generations have fought for. I do not want to squander that inheritance. However, the Bible, in addition to addressing real datable history, has this dimension to it of this deep symbolism. And it talks about the twisting serpent and the abyss and Sheol and Abaddon and destruction and the stars singing for joy at the creation of the world. All this, all this gorgeous stuff. And yet it's all true. You know, I love Lord of the Rings, but it's fiction and it claims to be fiction. What if you had all the beauty and subtlety and power of Lord of the Rings and it was all, all literally true? Mm. That would be a great combination to have in one book. And that's what we have in the Bible. Yeah. So, so we get, we get historical veracity and yeah, you, you, you know when you read Narnia and you get that tingling sense that something that won't quite go into words, a beauty that won't quite go into expression is given you. But instead of Narnia, which is just a fiction, it's all true. That's what we get in the Bible. So I try to avoid the word, but I don't think the Bible, if we take myth, the word myth in the best sense of that word, then the Bible being mythic is a beautiful and faith-nourishing thing. Mm. Uh, Again, our our. our our context as Westerners, we have a too simple cosmology. We have God in his heaven and physical reality. And, and the Bible's cosmology is more complex. It's more diverse and nuanced. Hmm. Amen to that. So to what extent, um, this is kind of kind of going a, a step further um, to a, mm. a similar question. Um, to what extent should we consider the book of Job as historical? Is it better understood mm. as, as a parable to make a theological point or wisdom literature i know a lot of people would put it in the wisdom literature books rather than in the historical books but i'd be interested to hear your opinion of that hmm. so be, i think it is a wisdom text that doesn't separate it from israel's history because a lot of other wisdom texts are explicitly tied to king solomon or, or something like that um i don't think job is a parable because texts which are explicitly parables are way more general and vague when Jotham tells his parable in, in Judges 9, you get different plants talking. When Jesus tells a parable, it's a certain so-and-so was walking toward a city or something. You don't tend to get specific names from specific places. Do you know what I mean? So it sounds as if Job was a real man who really lived. The question that raises is, you, you get the most subtle, refined Shakespearean poetry in the whole Bible here. Were these characters able to just sit down and just start uttering this profound poetry? off the top of their heads? Maybe yes, maybe they were. I wouldn't put it past them. On the other hand, Job is not an Israelite. He doesn't have a Yahwistic name. He lives outside the promised land. He sacrifices without a priest. You know, There are a lot of other indications that he lived very early in redemptive history around the time of Genesis. And so he probably didn't speak Hebrew. It looks as if a, a Holy Spirit-inspired Israelite narrator has taken a tradition about a non-Israelite who knew Yahweh but didn't know him by that name, 
and given us, um, well, I think it's a little bit of a synoptic problem. When Jesus preaches in John, he sounds like John. And I think if we get in time machine and listen to Jesus preach with the text of John, we'd say, okay, yes, this is accurate to what this is. I'm not being misled about what Jesus really said. Um, I suspect we're getting something similar with the book of Job. Uh, but I do think these are real people who actually lived. Yeah. You can tell me whether this analogy works or not. Maybe it doesn't. Mm. Um, but when Shakespeare wrote um, Henry VIII, you know, it's not as though it, it was very, it's very stylized and it's obviously mm. not really this kind of like concrete historical account, but it's, um, it's still talking about a real person who lived. Do you think that would be a fair analogy to use with Job or do you think, would you nuance it differently? Um, you know, I leave the question open. I'd be fine with that. I would not argue with someone who said that. I'd want to leave it within the range of ancient Semites just to utter this really beautiful poetry as they debate. Human beings are capable of a lot. On the other hand, I don't think, I don't find it at all, at all implausible to find a narrate, to have to imagine an Israelite narrator fleshing out a tradition about a non-Israelite that he's received. Either of those, I'm happy with either of those. Hmm. I'd like to to get back to obviously talking about um, the, the the question of evil, as that's obviously what Job um, is focusing on. So, um, do you think God's speeches in Job, the ones that you've talked about um, uh, very uh, very movingly, um, do you think they're relevant to discussions in philosophy about the problem of evil? Um, I'm aware that some theologians they try and say that the Book of Job is more sort of a a story of wrestling with suffering rather than providing concrete answers. So do you think we should model our theodicies around what God says in these passages, or should we be a little more conservative with how, how we use them? Right. I think the book, book of Job will have things relevant to say to Christian philosophers who want to think about God and evil. Um, there is a kind of implicit metaphysics there. It is worth paying attention to, but I think the book of Job does not qualify as a theodicy. I don't think it should be enlisted in our apologetic arguments with non-Christians. And there are a couple of reasons why. First of all, the book of Job is not speaking to an unbeliever. It's speaking to a believer who's trying to figure out what the heck God is doing. Um, secondly, God's answer to Job at no point involves an explanation or a justification of that famous line, justify the ways of God to man. Job never learns what the reader does in chapter one. He dies without ever knowing why he went through that hellish ordeal. He dies ignorant. He knows that God is not his enemy, and he knows God was God tolerated the evil, but it was not the source of it. And that's what he was confused about in the debate. But he never learns why. God does not appear to Job and say, Job, let me tell you what was going on in the divine council and what the devil and the devil was essentially saying a relationship with God is impossible. People just want to have a nice life. And I, I needed to demonstrate and actualize that human beings can actually relate to me for my own sake. Job never learns that at all. And I think there are reasons why he has to remain ignorant, which I'm happy to talk about. God also does not justify himself to Job by saying, Job, I tolerate even horrendous evil because it brings about greater good, because it brings about good, which is both greater and which could not be achieved in any other way except by tolerating that. Now, I think that idea itself is totally defensible and true and biblical. I think it's perfectly fine, but it's no part of the book of Job. 
There is zero explanation or justice. All God says is, I am more aware of the problem that you are than you are, and I'm going to take care of it in my own time. That's I don't think that's a theodicy. Hmm. So I think it is relevant to how we think about the powers which in God's world that resist him but are not greater than him. But I, I think the only element in the book of Job that be, could be called a theodicy is chapter one, where we see the larger theater within which Job's ordeal plays out. And even then, it's a very limited, ironic theodicy, because Job never learns about it. And when we go through our own Job like our deals, we'll ne- we're never going to learn what the larger theater was. We know there is one. But What do you think are some of the, you've, you've talked about this a bit, but I suppose if, you know, you were you were to sit down and with someone who was you know going through difficulties. Um, mm. What sort of practical applications could you take from um, the Book of Job and um, and talk about with with this person? Do you think? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, and the simple answer is basically don't do what Job's friends do, and which is just to say, don't blame them. Don't blame the sufferer. Don't say you must have done something wrong. It is so tempting to do that. Because when you see a Christian brother or sister in deep pain and seemingly unresolvable pain, and when you hear them start, start, it's scary to hear Christians say, maybe God is not the person I thought he was. It's scary to hear them say, even if my life got better, how could I ever let myself relax again when I know my, this might happen again? I was talking with a dear friend in the U.S. who's going through this awful divorce and it's dragged on for years. And she's a dear Christian woman and she's getting hurt in all kinds of ways. And it was just so tempting to start to say, maybe you shouldn't have married that guy. Maybe you should have seen the warning signs. And that's blaming the victim. And when I'm doing that, I'm trying to resolve my own sense of horror at the suffering of others by saying it's your fault. It's far more horrifying if it happens for reasons we don't know. Blaming the victim is a way of comforting ourselves and making ourselves feel better. It's a way of relieving our own discomfort. It's hard to sit with people as they weep, and there's no end in sight. So you don't comfort yourself, and you don't blame people. There's a time and a place to ask, is God gently bringing some sin to light through this suffering for you to repent? And when they say what Job says, when they say, I'm not perfect, but I've done nothing to explain why my life went so horribly wrong, you say, okay, and, and you don't correct them. People in pain say crazy things. It's not our job to theologically correct them. God is going to do that in his own time, in his own way. He did it for Job, will do it for others. Your, your, your job is not even to really take everything they say terribly seriously. Your job is to be there with them and not really even to talk at them. People who are traumatized, they'll have a hard time he- taking in what other people say. The best thing you can do is say, let me sit with you and wait for God to restore you and to vindicate you. Because in the book of Job, Job Job-like ordeals are horrifying, but they are the exception to the rule. God's normal policy is blessing and generosity in secondary earthly blessings. And Job got back there eventually, and you and I will too. That's his normal policy with his children. So you sit with people and wait with them. There are so many, you know, tragic stories of what you just um, alluded to in, in the first part there of um, just um, people just saying all too quickly, you know, oh, it was, it was, you've, you must have sinned, you know, and uh, I suppose we can, 
we can thank God that this book of the Bible <laughs> exists, you know, because it really um, warns against that. And has, um, as the book of Job has it, especially the ending, has it impacted you in your own personal life in, in any way? Yeah, I, I think it's the joy that has impacted me the most. It's, it's, I knew about God's defeat of evil from other parts of the Old, of the Old Testament. Excuse me. It's the joy with which God views creation before it is redeemed. God seems unstintingly happy. He even sounds cheerful as he talk, he's talking about Leviathan. And it's almost like he can't wait until he gets that sword out and cuts Leviathan in half. It's, I tend to be a more of a glasses half empty kind of person. And if God can look at the world with utter realism and utter joy, and not only that, if it took the death of God's son to redeem the world and God is still happy about creation continuing, that is just, that's flabbergasting. I'm kind of at a loss for words. That's what, that's what really hits me with the book of Job. And that's what I want to. That's what I want to emulate. It must be possible to live in the real world of holocausts and all that with joy and courage. Mm, absolutely. Do you think uh, one other question? Uh, a question about suffering, Job. That I have. Do you think um, Job has something important to say about the 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 power of lamentation in 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 the Christian life? Mm. You know, a, a lot of people say um, that you know you can't you can't talk back to God. Just you know be a stoic but it seems that we almost get a the the direct opposite of that in job um Mm. now of course there's obviously that question of whether um job repents at the end or whether he's comforted that's uh Mm. i had i had a guest on recently who argued it's actually comforted but i'm wondering Mm. what what would your opinion on that be yeah, I, yeah, I, I think actually where Job said, I think comfort is actually the best translation, but it's a verb that can either, it can, I, I, I think when Job says, I am comforted, he's saying I am repented because he was not comforted during the, during the debate. So he's saying I'm completely reconciled to who God is and what I've suffered, which is a kind of, he's not protesting anymore. He is kind of repenting, if you know what I mean. Um, now, on the one hand, we don't want to valorize Job because Job takes everything back. Job doesn't end the book by saying, oh, I'm so glad I argued and protested. Job is putting his hand over his mouth and saying, I did not know what I was talking about. But any Christian who wants to say you never talk back to God has never read the book of Psalms and has never read how the gospel writers just take Psalms of lament and they just plaster them all over Jesus's life. It is, it is, it is not, it is an, I read the book of Psalms and I can't help but think that God thinks you are honoring him when, when you take this problem before God and, and you say, this should not be, I know you don't want this to happen. And when you intervene and fix this, you're going to win glory for your great name in the earth through this. So what is the deal and what are you waiting for? Um, I think Psalms of Lament, and I think Job comes across as um, kind of sharp, um, what's the word I want, and kind of strident to us. Because the psalmist deeply believe that God is a fair judge and at work in the world. And I think if we believe that more, we would lament more energetically. The, the psalms of lament continually take the problem before God and they make it God's problem. And they say, and they say, stick up for yourself, stick up for us. 
and defend your own reputation as a perfect savior. Please, please, please. And we love you and we trust you anyway, and you are our God forever. Um, in Christopher Ashe's commentary on Job, he says that when they he was preaching Job chapter three, he uh, uh, they didn't sing in the service, no music. They read it. It was solemn, sober, and nobody talked after church. Everyone just went home. Um, Job is not speaking the absolute truth about God, but this is part of scripture that we're supposed to hear. So, yeah, giving giving people space to lament doesn't kill faith, and God doesn't take it as a slight to his reputation. I'm frankly shocked by what you get to say to God in the book of Psalms. Absolutely. I wouldn't let my kids talk that way to me. But I think God is, I think God in his grace takes, essentially says, you are honoring me when you make this my problem. Yeah, that's one of the interesting paradoxes about about God, I suppose. Yeah. You've had a lot of very good things to say and uh, helpful things to say. So in conclusion, I'd just like to ask two questions that are not nearly as uh, uh, important, but a lot of people have these um, questions when they read the book of Job. Yeah. And um, one would be, where is the land of Uts or Oz? It's, yeah, where is that? (laughs) Uh, nobody knows. Apparently it's in or near Edom because it's associated with Edom in a verse of Jeremiah, but basically no one is sure. Right. Okay. That's uh, so I'll, <laughs> that, that was my mom's question. actually. So, so I'll just tell her no one knows. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, That's the best I can do. Sorry. Yeah. And the second one is when was the book of Job written? I know there's a debate there about that. Yeah. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So it looks it, it looks pre-exilic. Um, yeah, it looks pre-exilic. The poetry looks early. None of the characters refer to Yahweh, the covenant name, but the narrator does in the prose sections. And there is a debate about that, and people go back and forth on those things. I don't know. Uh, David Noel Friedman had a longish uh, article about... Uh, the short and long spellings, and he put it in the pre-exilic period. Other people look at the Hebrew and say post-exilic for the uh, for the prologue. It looks pre-exilic to me. Otherwise, I just don't know. The narrator is not concerned to tell us. He could have made it clear if he wanted to, but he hasn't. Yeah. So. And definitely, it's not a very important question when it comes to the whether it was written a hundred years when it was whether it was written a hundred years before Jesus or two thousand years. You know, that's it doesn't matter. But I sure. appreciate um, that. And uh, so that'll, that's been great to speak to you today, uh, Dr. Ortland. Thank you. God bless. Absolutely. Thank you very much.